Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. I'm about to tell you something more terrifying than anything I've ever shared on Weird Darkness. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Five people every hour die of a drug overdose, ten per hour from alcohol abuse. If someone you know suffers from depression, they might be using without you even knowing it. Don't find out too late. If you even suspect they might be using, call and learn what you can do to help them escape the dark. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get help and keep their job so they can return to it. 1-800-273-8255 Stories and content and weird From the kids to Aunt Sue Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed. Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Imagine this. It's winter. You, your brother and sister, and some friends are staying in an awesome lodge in the mountains, something you do every year. Everything is great until a few of your friends decide to play a nasty prank on you. Instead of being the butt of their joke, you take off, only your sister pursuing you. That is, until something else appears. It's large, monstrous, and spewing fire. You both run until you're cornered on a cliff, but you both slip and fall. Your sister dies instantly, but you are still alive. Your body is broken. You can't move but you're still alive. The creature that was chasing you has disappeared, and no one can hear your screams. One year later, your brother and friends return to the cabin. You're not the same person. You're hungry, and you can't control your insatiable appetite. You've become the same as the creature that chased you over the cliff. You are a Wendigo. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… A creepy true story from weirdo family member Courtney Rondo. What began as a robbery turned into something far more horrific. July 14, 1966 an inebriated robber stumbled into a Chicago townhouse and took the lives of eight young women. 
A woman explains away odd happenings in her home until she can no longer come up with explanations. Was journalist Danny Casolaro murdered after uncovering a vast global conspiracy called the octopus? The case was one of the most famous and controversial of the 1950s, and it went on to inspire the TV show and film The Fugitive, as well as Stephen King's story and the film The Shawshank Redemption. It's the true story of Dr. Sam Shepard. The Wendigo. It appears in numerous areas of pop culture, like the TV shows Supernatural and The X-Files, the movie Ravenous, and games such as Dungeons & Dragons, along with video games like Final Fantasy and Until Dawn. But the Wendigo isn't just a creature from someone's imagination. We'll begin there. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. We can trace the origin of the Wendigo back to the legends of the Native American Algonquin people, including the Ojibwe, the Salto, the Cree, the Naskapi, and the Innu. Wendigo is plural for Wendigoeg, which roughly translated means the evil spirit that devours mankind. They are believed to roam around the forests along the Atlantic coast and the Great Lakes region where the Algonquin people once lived. Legends say that Wendigoag were once humans, but were formed when that person consumed human flesh. It did not matter if it were a choice or a means for survival, the person would be overcome by evil spirits and transformed into a Wendigo. Another version of the story says that the very first Wendigoag was a warrior who made a deal with the devil to save his tribe. In doing so, he gave up his soul and was transformed into a Wendigoag. When peace was finally attained, there was no more need for the Wendigoag, and he was banished from the tribe, forced to live as an outcast. Regardless of which story you believe, the fact is the Wendigo is a terrifying creature. They have an insatiable hunger for human flesh, never feeling satisfied. This is reflected in their appearance, as they are extremely thin and tall, often measuring at approximately 14.8 feet in height. Their skin is yellowish in color and taut across their bones like leather stretched on a rack. They have long, yellowed fangs and long tongues protruding from a stag skull head their eyes glowing specks in the dark. Basil Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, described a Wendigo as gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from suppurations of the flesh 
The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Natives long attributed disappearances of local forest dwellers to the Wendigo, believing they were eaten. The creature has been spotted by more than just Native Americans. In fact, early settlers reported seeing a Wendigo near a town called Rosso in northern Minnesota. They claimed that every time this creature was spotted, a death followed soon after. The question is, is the Wendigo real? Or is it the result of mental illness and susceptible believers? Wendigo psychosis is one of the more dramatic mental illnesses, characterized by an intense craving for human flesh. In accounts reported by Jesuit missionaries, it was reported that humans became possessed by the Wendigo spirit after being in a situation of needing food and having no other choice aside from cannibalism. The following was taken from their reports in the Jesuit Relations. What caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake, namely that the men deputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming, had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounced upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey and the more greedily the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies and, as death is the sole remedy among these simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. One famous case of Wendigo psychosis is that of a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner. During the winter of 1878, a year of starvation and misery for the Cree people, Swift Runner and his family were starving. His eldest son died with food and emergency supplies just 25 miles away. However, instead of making a move to get supplies, Swift killed and ate his wife and five other children. His case was not cannibalism as a last resort, but a man with Wendigo psychosis. In the end, Swift Runner confessed to authorities and was executed at Fort Saskatchewan. The legitimacy of Wendigo psychosis has been a highly debated controversy since the 1980s, leaving some researchers arguing that Wendigo psychosis was a fabrication, the result of naive anthropologists taking stories related to them as truth without having observed the behavior itself. Others argued their credible eyewitness accounts as evidence that Wendigo psychosis was a factual historical phenomenon. It was the light that woke me. The light from the nightlight down the hall trickled into my childhood bedroom 
as I heard the familiar creaking of the opening door. As I looked down my bed towards the only entryway to my room, I did not see anyone that could be moving the door. It was opening by itself at such a slow and consistent pace that it didn't even seem possible without some source of steady force. With my eyes glued to the door and my heart racing, I immediately sat up in my bed, anticipating a hand to reach for the doorknob or for a head to peek in through the gap, or for my older sister to jump in and scare me. She had never played a prank in the middle of the night, but it was the only logical possibility I could think of. The light was seeping in, revealing more and more of my room, and the groaning hinges chilled me and were almost deafening against the dead silence. Terror had its grip on me, and I remained frozen, clenching the blankets around my waist. Just before the door reached its maximum range, it finally stopped. The room was so well lit that I could easily distinguish every corner of my bedroom from my peripherals. I could feel my heart pounding all throughout my body, but I couldn't move, not even to turn on the lamp next to my bed. I was too terrified to move my eyes away from the door in case someone or something appeared. Minutes passed after the door came to a stop, and I remained petrified as my heart continued to pound so hard it felt like waves were rapidly crashing against my whole body. I stared down the hall and hoped to see a string or wire to reveal that someone was just trying to play a trick on me. But no such luck. After staring at the door for almost 15 minutes, I finally chanced a split-second glance at my bedside light so that my right hand would know exactly where the switch was. While I was sitting at the head of my bed and staring at my bedroom door, I shot my hand to the lamp switch. What I saw still baffles me to this day. The door was closed. Up next, what began as a robbery turned into something far more horrific with the deaths of eight young women in a Chicago townhouse. A woman explains away odd happenings in her home until she can no longer come up with explanations. And was journalist Danny Casolaro murdered after uncovering a vast global conspiracy called The Octopus? These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. You've heard me talking about my pillow for a while now. Well, I bought a memory foam mattress a few years ago, thinking that it would be more comfortable for me, and it was for a while, but if I'm in bed for too long, it really hurts my back, to the point that I can barely walk the next morning. I was to the point I had to sleep in shifts just to give my back a rest. But somehow, and I'm not sure why, but placing the MyPillow mattress topper on top of the memory foam has completely eliminated my back aches. I wake up with zero pain now, and that is the best way to start the day. But if you've never tried any of the MyPillow products, now is the perfect time to investigate because they're offering four pillows at once, two premium and two go-anywhere pillows all together for one low price. And you can get free shipping if you use the promo code WEIRD. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and enter promo code WEIRD for free shipping.
On July 14, 1966, an inebriated Richard Speck stumbled into the townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street in Chicago, Illinois, and took the lives of eight nursing students. After entering the house, Speck woke up the women who were fast asleep and ordered them into a bedroom, asking for whatever cash they had and claiming that he wasn't going to kill them. But when two women from the neighboring boarding house entered number 2319 while Speck was torturing Pamela Wilkening, all hell broke loose. Though it's unclear what Speck would have done had neighbors Suzanne Ferris and Marianne Jordan not appeared, what happened next was a massacre. After killing all three of the women, Speck went back for the remaining victims he had been keeping in a separate room, taking them out one by one, raping and killing them until no one was left. At least that's what he thought. Whether he was unaware of how many women were in the house to begin with, or if the unexpected arrival of the neighboring nursing students threw him off, Cora Amaro managed to wedge herself under a bed, out of view, until Speck finally left. She was the only survivor. Amaro was able to bring Richard Speck to justice with her eyewitness account and with the help of fingerprints at the scene that matched Speck's. Only 49 minutes of deliberation were necessary before Speck was sentenced to death. But how did this young man, who claimed not to remember the night in which he spent hours torturing and killing eight young women, become a killer? Born December 6, 1941, Speck's home life was unexceptional for his first years. But after his beloved father and his oldest brother died within five years of each other, Speck's life began to change. His mother, previously a temperance movement teetotaler, fell in love with a traveling insurance salesman with an eye towards his drink. Speck's new stepfather, Carl Lindbergh, was an abusive drunk who'd been found guilty of forgery and drunk driving. Just a year after brother Robert's death, 12-year-old Speck began drinking. By 15, he was drunk nearly every day. Speck dropped out of school at 16. By this time, he'd already been arrested many times for misdemeanors, including trespassing and disturbing the peace. Speck escalated to violence in his 20s, stabbing two people with a knife within a year of each other. At this point, Speck's wife, some five years younger than him, left him. With nowhere else to go, Speck moved in with his sister, then back to his hometown in Illinois. Upon his return to Monmouth, Speck became even more violent. In April 1966, Speck raped two women, killing one. But then Speck seemed to get his act in order. He applied to work as an apprentice seaman with the U.S. Coast Guard in June. Then Speck lost out on an assignment to a more senior seaman. After being kicked out of his sister's apartment, he went on a day-long bender, ending with violence once again. He kidnapped 53-year-old Ella Mae Hooper, raped her, and stole her pistol. But that act was not enough to quench Speck's anger. Later that night, after dinner, Speck took the pistol he had stolen, as well as a switchblade, and set out a mile and a half to a townhouse 
filled with nursing students. He arrived at 11 that night. Speck had been drinking all day and allegedly also abusing drugs. The seven women in the townhouse soon found themselves in a form of hell they could never have imagined. Five women were shepherded into a bedroom together while three more hid in a closet. Thinking that they may be able to save themselves, one of the women asked Speck what he wanted. His answer was to go to New Orleans. Each of the women gave the intruder what money they had for a ticket to New Orleans. It seemed that they may have saved their own lives, until a ninth nurse, Gloria Jean Davy, arrived home after her date. Speck panicked and tied up each of the eight women, then took his first victim, Pamela Wilkening, out of the room. Thus began a sick night, as Speck took each woman out of the bedroom one at a time to torture and kill them. Meanwhile, Cora Amaro hid under a bed within earshot but out of sight. Around 3 a.m., Speck's rampage was finished. Amaro remained hidden for two more hours before escaping and finding help. Amaro's ability to stay hidden would prove to be Speck's downfall. On July 16th, a drifter called the police upon seeing Speck's sketch in the paper. Before Speck could be arrested, he attempted suicide. At the hospital, a doctor also recognized Speck from Amaro's sketch, and the mass murderer was arrested on the spot. A number of theories surrounding Speck's violence were proposed, from traumatic brain injuries to obsessive-compulsive disorder and XYY syndrome, which at the time was believed to make men more aggressive than their more typical XY counterparts. Regardless, Speck was quickly found guilty. His death sentence was reversed due to a 1971 Supreme Court decision, but his 1972 resentencing resulted in a 1,200-year sentence. Speck died in prison December 5, 1991, of a heart attack. This is the truth. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Spit in my hand and… never mind, that's gross. I'm 65 years old and a recent widow. I've known for some time that there is a ghost or ghosts in my house. We moved into the house in September of 91. It has three bedrooms, four if you count the little room in the basement, and a full-finished basement. We used the basement as a library and family-slash-playroom. The second week we were here, my little girl of four years and I were downstairs in the family room watching children's programs. We heard footsteps in the hall upstairs, going toward the bedrooms. She asked, who is that? I told her maybe it was her dad coming home early. Easing my way up the switchback stairs and calling, hello, I got no answer. I slipped through the hallway, checking the girls' rooms and finally the master bedroom. No one. And the front and back doors were locked. I told my daughter that it was the pipes cooling off, and she was okay with that explanation. Our cat Squirt liked to stretch out in the hall in such a way that everyone had to step over him. He loved to reach up and grab at our feet as he flipped to his other side. 
One night at supper, I watched him where he lay in the hall, facing away from me. Suddenly, his ears perked up and then he rolled to his back, pawing at feet that I couldn't see as they went over him. He seemed to be watching someone continue toward the kitchen. A couple of minutes later, he repeated his performance, flipping the other way, ears perked as he watched an invisible someone go back down the hall. My son chose the small windowless corner room in the basement for his bedroom. For once, he could have the total dark to sleep in. About two weeks after the first incident, he came up the steps looking just a little puzzled. I thought Squirt was in the library, but he vanished when I turned the light on, he said. He further explained that he'd seen a small, dark something on the floor a couple of feet from his bedroom door in the dim light from the stairwell window. Once he saw a basketball-sized orb float through the patio room around the living room furniture and through the closed hall door. As he was on his way to the bathroom, he finally went through the door. No orb. He told me about it the next morning. I think we're haunted, I said. My son and I were actually a bit pleased. No one else was. One time, while sitting at the kitchen table reading, I heard noises in the laundry room and pantry, which is next to the kitchen. I turned enough to see into the room and my older daughter was in there. I figured she was looking for something. After a bit, I asked her if she couldn't find what she was looking for. The only problem was she was at the other end of the house, in her room. No one was in the laundry room. Now that everyone's gone but myself and five cats, we have an agreement, Ghost and I. No scaring the living daylights out of me and no burning sage in the house on my part. I may have to rethink that. My bed is queen-sized, plenty of room for me and one or two cats. The room is dimly lit by a small nightlight, so I don't have to turn on a light if I have to get up in the middle of the night. I have poor eyesight without my glasses, which I always put on the nightstand. That Friday night, I dressed in my favorite knee-length nightshirt with just a sheet over me, slightly curled up on my left side, burrowed my head in my pillow, and sleep overtook me. My cat, Sorrow, joined me, curling up in front of me. My other cat, Smudge, was snoring on my husband's dresser. A rather oddball dream woke me. Lifting my head a bit, the red numbers on the radio clock were visible. 12.04 a.m. I settled back down to deconstruct the dream. As I was thinking through the bits and pieces, it suddenly felt as if the sheet was being slowly pulled down. My legs were bare and I could feel the sheet slide ever so slightly. Ghost is putting one over on me, I thought. Then there was a slight pressure on my feet pushing them down. Not good, went through my mind. The pressure spread slowly upward. There was a tingling sensation in my legs, as if they were hooked to an electrical nerve stimulator. I didn't feel as if I could move my legs. I was kind of afraid to try. I had that feeling you get watching horror movies when you know the monster is right around the corner, about to jump out. All goosebumps. Gradually, the feeling eased up over my knees. 
It felt like one of those lead blankets they put over the parts of you they don't want exposed to x-rays. The air seemed to be heavy and thick. My breathing was deep and rapid and my heart was pounding. All I could see was the dimness, the blurry shadows cast by the tiny nightlight. I could hear Smudge's small snores as he slept on. The pressure and tingling crept to my waist. Every muscle in my body had tensed without my willing it. I had the distinct impression that if I didn't do something, it would take my whole body. I couldn't move, so I did the next best thing. One deep breath. Quit it! My voice was hoarse, unrecognizable to me. Another deep breath. The sensations had stopped creeping, but the lead blanket feeling and the tingling were still there, seemingly waiting for me to give in. A third deep breath. Quit it! Now! The sensation slowly crept back down and was gone. My muscles relaxed, and when I spoke to Sorrow, it was in my voice. One little part of me wanted to pull the sheet over my head and wait for dawn. The bigger part of me slapped it, moved Sorrow, and got up to check the house with a quick stop in the bathroom. All was well, except when I got back in bed. I checked the clock again. 2.24 a.m. I know it had read just past midnight when I woke from the dream because I remember thinking six more hours of sleep and the whole thing only seemed to last a few minutes. As an after-effect, my right shoulder, elbow, hip, knee, and ankle ached for three days, along with a headache in the right side of my head. Let's not meet like that again, ghost. Danny Casolero was found dead in a hotel bathtub at the Sheraton Hotel in August 1991. The official verdict was suicide. At the time of his death, he was investigating a sprawling criminal conspiracy that he labeled the octopus. The exact nature and extent of Casalero's octopus, or whether it existed at all, has been subject to much debate and speculation since. The cause of Casalero's death itself was disputed, with many authors and investigators regarding the suicide verdict with skepticism, leading to suspicions that Casalero was silenced because of what he had discovered about the octopus. Had Casalero stumbled upon a vast criminal conspiracy? Casalero's starting point for his investigation was a real criminal case, a wide-ranging Washington scandal involving allegations that the U.S. government had stolen software company Inslaw's Promise program and added illegal backdoors in order to spy on foreign governments. Casalero called his conspiracy Octopus for a reason, as he followed the trail from Promise to reveal a much larger story, one that encompassed such seemingly disparate events as the October Surprise, the collapse of bank BBCI, and the illegal drugs and arms trade all orchestrated by a secret cabal of global elites. Whilst the full extent of Casalero's octopus is in dispute, it is based on several real events. Casalero was found dead in a hotel bathtub, seemingly having slit his wrists and bled to death. 
However, friends, family, and some investigators immediately doubted that verdict. Suspiciously, the large accordion file with Casalero's notes and evidence was missing. Casalero had also been complaining to friends about anonymous death threats he'd been receiving. On one occasion, his housekeeper fielded multiple calls in the space of a few hours, one in which a voice said he was going to cut Casalero's body up and throw it to the sharks. Paramedics and medical professionals found problematic details in the suicide. One pathologist who studied the autopsy noted the lack of hesitance marks and the savage, deep nature of the cuts to Casalero's wrists as being highly unusual. This was echoed by an attending paramedic who told investigators, I've never seen such deep incisions on a suicide. I don't know how he didn't pass out from the pain after the first two slashes. The toxicology report also came under scrutiny. Antidepressants were found in Casalero's blood, yet he had no history of depression and had never been prescribed the drugs. Despite Casalero's general thesis having a credible tinge to it, it lacks detail and no solid evidence has ever emerged to definitely link the multiple seemingly disparate events that made up his octopus. No evidence from his investigation was ever found after his death, and whatever other leads he may have had were lost with his passing. When Weird Darkness returns, the case was one of the most famous and controversial of the 1950s and went on to inspire the TV show and film The Fugitive, as well as Stephen King's story and film The Shawshank Redemption. It's the true story of the real-life fugitive, Dr. Sam Shepard. Up next. As you know, I only endorse products I personally use, and recently I discovered CBD oil. See, I noticed my wife's aching hands, they weren't giving her as much trouble as usual. They were really hurting her, but I realized one day she wasn't complaining anymore. Well, it turns out she'd been using CBD products for a few weeks, and it was really working for her. Well, I'm not one for experimental cures or quote-unquote natural remedies, but I was in so much pain every morning in so many areas of my body, I just decided to give it a try. So I began taking 2,000 milligrams of CBD oil under my tongue each day. That's the only thing I changed. It took about a week, but I can honestly tell you I no longer wake up with pain. I was dealing with knee pain, lower back pain, neck pain, sciatica, and they have all but disappeared from my mornings. It's, it's amazing. And those terrible migraines that I used to get during the day, they are a lot less frequent and a lot less severe now. I'm really hoping if I continue this that I'll have fewer problems with my vertigo as well. I'll let you know if that actually does happen. I was so impressed I signed up to be an affiliate just so I could save money when I order it for myself every month. If you want to do the same thing, though, or if you want to try a product or two first, you can find a link to these CBD products on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. On November 16, 1966, Dr. Sam Shepard was acquitted at his second trial for the murder of his wife, Marilyn, in 1954. The case was one of the most famous and controversial of the 1950s, 
It went on to inspire the TV show and film The Fugitive, even though the creators deny that. It also inspired Stephen King's story and the film The Shawshank Redemption. Samuel Shepard was born in Cleveland, Ohio, the youngest of three sons of Dr. Richard Allen Shepard. He attended Cleveland Heights High School, where he was an excellent student and was active in football, basketball, and track. He was class president for three years, although several small Ohio colleges offered him athletic scholarships, Shepard chose to follow the lead of his father and two older brothers and pursued a career in osteopathic medicine. He enrolled at Hanover College in Indiana, studied at the Western Reserve University in Cleveland, and then finished his medical education at the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians and Surgeons. He completed his internship and residency in Los Angeles, but a few years after marrying Marilyn Reese in February 1945, Shepard returned to Ohio and joined his father's growing medical practice. What seemed a promising life was shattered when Shepard was arrested and then convicted for murdering his then-pregnant wife Marilyn in their home in the early morning hours of July 4, 1954. Shepard claimed his wife was killed by a bushy-haired man who also attacked him and twice knocked him unconscious. The Shepherd's lakefront home was located in Bay Village, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland just west of the city. Shepard was brought to trial in the autumn of 1954. The case is notable for its extensive publicity and what the U.S. Supreme Court called a carnival atmosphere. Newspapers across the country vilified Shepard in print and were obviously biased against the doctor with their inflammatory coverage of the case. Shepard was portrayed as the only suspect in the case. One headline from Cleveland even read, Why isn't Sam Shepard in jail? His suspect, the one-armed man, uh, the bushy-haired man, was dismissed by investigators and reporters alike as a fanciful concoction. The high-profile nature of the case proved to be a boon to lead prosecutor John J. Mahone, who was running for a seat on the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas as the trial began. Mahone won his seat and served until his death January 31, 1962. But things did admittedly look bad for Shepard. It was revealed during the course of the investigation and trial that Shepard had a three-year-long extramarital affair with Susan Hayes, a nurse at the hospital where Shepard was employed. The prosecution argued that the affair was Shepard's motive for killing his wife. Shepard's attorney, William Corrigan, argued that Shepard had severe injuries and that those injuries were inflicted by the intruder. Corrigan based his argument on the report made by noted neurosurgeon Dr. Charles Elkins, M.D., who examined Shepard and found that he had suffered a cervical concussion, nerve injury, many absent or weak reflexes, most notably on the left side of his body, and injury in the region of the second cervical vertebra in the back of the neck. Dr. Elkins stated that it was impossible to fake or simulate the missing reflex responses. The defense further argued that the crime scene was extremely bloody and, except for a small spot on his trousers, the only blood evidence on Shepard was transfer bloodstains on his watch. Corrigan also argued that two of Marilyn's teeth had been broken and the pieces had been pulled out of her mouth, suggesting she had bitten her assailant, 
he told the jury that Shepard had no open wounds. Shepard took the stand in his own defense. He testified that he had been sleeping downstairs on a daybed when he woke to his wife's screams. He told a vague story, saying, I think that she cried or screamed my name once or twice, during which time I ran upstairs, thinking that she might have a reaction similar to convulsions that she had had in the early days of her pregnancy. I charged into our room and saw a form with a light garment, I believe, at that time grappling with something or someone. During this short period, I could hear loud moans or groaning sounds and noises. I was struck down. It seems like I was hit from behind somehow, but had grappled this individual from in front or generally in front of me. I was apparently knocked out. The next thing I knew, I was gathering my senses while coming to a sitting position next to my bed, my feet toward the hallway. He further said, I looked at my wife. I believe I took her pulse and felt she was gone. I believe that I thereafter instinctively or subconsciously ran into my youngster's room next door and somehow determined that he was all right. I'm not sure how I determined this. After that, I thought that I heard a noise downstairs, seemingly in the front eastern portion of the house. He ran back downstairs and chased what he described as a bushy-haired intruder or form down to the Lake Erie Beach below his home, before being knocked out again. The defense called 18 character witnesses for Shepard and two witnesses who said that they had seen a bushy-haired man near the Shepard home on the day of the crime. The jury, however, was not convinced. December 21, 1954, it found Shepard guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Soon after his conviction, Shepard twice received devastating family news. On January 7, 1955, his mother committed suicide by gunshot. Eleven days later, his father died of a bleeding gastric ulcer. In both cases, he was permitted to attend the funerals, but was required to wear handcuffs. After more than six years of appeals, Corrigan died on July 30, 1961. Months later, F. Lee Bailey took over as Shepard's chief counsel. Family tragedies also continued during this period. On February 13, 1963, his late wife's father, Thomas S. Reese, committed suicide in an East Cleveland, Ohio motel. Shepard served 10 years of his sentence. After several appeals were rejected, his petition for a writ of habeas corpus was granted by a United States District Court judge on July 15, 1964. The state of Ohio was ordered either to free Shepard or to grant him a new trial. The case was reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court in Shepard v. Maxwell. The court held that Shepard's conviction was the result of a trial in which he was denied due process. The decision noted, among other factors, that a carnival atmosphere had permeated the trial and that Edward J. Blythen, the trial judge, had refused to sequester the jury, had not ordered the jury to ignore and disregard media reports of the case, and when speaking to newspaper columnist Dorothy Kilgallen shortly before the trial started, said, well, he's guilty as hell, there's no question about it. At his new arraignment on September 8, 1966, Shepard loudly pleaded not guilty with his attorney F. Lee Bailey by his side. Jury selection got underway on October 24th, and opening statements began eight days later, 
Unlike the original trial, neither Shepard nor Susan Hayes took the stand, a strategy that proved to be successful when a not-guilty verdict was returned November 16th. The trial was very important to Bailey's rise to prominence among American criminal defense lawyers. It was during this trial that Paul Kirk presented the blood spatter evidence he collected in Shepard's home in 1955, which proved crucial to his acquittal. After his acquittal, Shepard helped write a book which presented his side of the case and gave insight into his years in prison. He also returned briefly to medicine in Youngstown, Ohio, but was sued twice for medical malpractice by the estates of dead patients. After that, his life went into a tailspin. He never really recovered from the trial, accusations, and years in prison. He worked briefly as a professional wrestler, going by the name The Killer, and became a raging alcoholic. He died of liver failure April 6, 1970. By the end of his life, Shepard was reportedly prone to drinking as much as two-fifths of liquor a day. He was buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Gardens in Columbus, Ohio. But his story was not over yet. In 1997, his remains were exhumed for DNA testing as part of the lawsuit brought by his son to clear his name. Shepard's son, Samuel Reese Shepard, had devoted considerable time and effort toward clearing his father's reputation. In 1999, he sued the state of Ohio in the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas for his father's wrongful imprisonment. At the trial, attorney Terry Gilbert, who had been retained by Shepard, suggested that Richard Eberling, an occasional handyman and window washer at the Shepard home, was the likeliest suspect in Marilyn's murder, after a ring that had belonged to Marilyn Shepard was allegedly found in his possession. Eberling died in an Ohio prison in 1998, where he was serving a life sentence for the 1984 murder of an elderly, wealthy Lakewood, Ohio woman. Ethel May Durkin, a widow who died without any immediate family. Durkin's murder was uncovered when a court-appointed review of the woman's estate revealed that Eberling, Durkin's guardian and executor, had failed to execute the decedent's final wishes, which included stipulations on her burial. Durkin's body was exhumed, and additional injuries were discovered in the autopsy that did not match Eberling's previous claims of in-house accidents, including a fall down a staircase in her home. Coincidentally, both of Durkin's sisters, Myrtle Frey and Sarah Bell Farrow, had died under suspicious circumstances as well. Frey was killed after being savagely beaten about the head and face and then strangled. Farrow died following a fall down the basement steps in the home she shared with Durkin in 1970, a fall in which she broke both legs and both arms. In subsequent legal action, both Eberling and his partner, Obi Henderson, were found guilty in Durkin's death. DNA testing of Richard Eberling's blood in connection with the Shepard investigation to see if there was a match with the blood found at the murder scene was inconclusive. Prosecutors argued that the blood evidence had been tainted in the years since it was collected and that it potentially placed 90% of all Americans on the crime scene. Blood collected from a closet door in Marilyn Shepard's room was type O, while Eberling's blood type was A. Eberling had admitted at home 
and stated he cut his finger while washing windows and bled while on the premises. This has been cited as evidence of Eberling's involvement in the murder, although some questioned why Eberling would account for his blood being in the house. Though Eberling denied any criminal involvement in the Shepard case, a fellow convict reported that Eberling confessed to the crime. Kathy Collins Dial, a home health care worker for Durkin, also testified that Eberling had confessed to her in 1983. The credibility of both witnesses was seriously called into question during the 2000 civil trial. F. Lee Bailey, Shepard's attorney during the 1966 retrial, insisted in his testimony in the 2000 civil lawsuit that Eberling could not have been the killer. Instead, Bailey suggested that Esther Houck, wife of Bay Village Mayor Spencer Houck, had killed Marilyn in a fit of jealous rage after finding out that Marilyn and her husband had had an affair. The Houks were neighbors of the Shepherds. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor William D. Mason led the state of Ohio's trial team, which included assistant prosecutors Steve Dever, Kathleen Martin, and Dean M. Boland. They argued that Shepard was the most logical suspect and presented expert testimony suggesting that Marilyn Shepard's murder was a textbook domestic homicide. They argued that Shepard had not welcomed the news of his wife's pregnancy, wanted to continue his affairs with Susan Hayes and with other women, was concerned about the social stigma that a divorce might create, and killed Marilyn to get out of his marriage. Prosecutors asked why Shepard hadn't called out for help, why he had neatly folded his jacket on the daybed in which he said he'd fallen asleep, and why the family dog, which several witnesses had testified in the first trial in 1954, was very loud when strangers came to the house, had not barked on the night of the murder, recalling the famous Sherlock Holmes remark about the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, with its implication that the dog knew the criminal. After ten weeks of trial, 76 witnesses, and hundreds of exhibits, the case went to the eight-person civil jury. The jury deliberated just three hours on April 12, 2000, before returning a unanimous verdict that Samuel Reese Shepard had failed to prove that his father had been wrongfully imprisoned. On February 22, 2002, the Eighth District Court of Appeals ruled unanimously that the case should not have gone to the jury as a wrongful imprisonment claim could only be made by the person actually imprisoned, and not by a family member such as Sam Reese Shepard. Legal standing to bring such a claim, the Court of Appeals found, died with the person who had been imprisoned. In August 2002, the Supreme Court of Ohio affirmed the appeals court's decision. The Shepard case continues to be a mystery to this day. Technically unsolved, it's unlikely that we will never know for sure who killed Marilyn Shepard in that Cleveland lake house. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, please click that like button and be sure to subscribe and click the notification bell so you don't miss future episodes. If you consider yourself a part of the Weirdo family, 
please share this podcast with your friends, family, and co-workers and suggest they subscribe. Doing so benefits me by benefiting my sponsors. And please, check out those businesses who are supporting the podcast. You can see them all on the Sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. If you'd like to support the show even more, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. All patrons at any giving level get a commercial-free early release of my Daily Dose of Weird News podcast the day before it's published anywhere else. Patrons giving $5 per month or more become official weirdos and get commercial-free versions of every Weird Darkness episode I post. Patrons at the $10 per month level or higher get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. Learn more on the Become a Patron page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the website, you can find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, along with my personal Facebook and Twitter. You can read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and you can join the Weirdos of Marlar House Facebook group to hang out with me and other listeners of the podcast. Look for Weirdos of Marlar House on Facebook, or just click the link in the show notes. And if you want to contact me through email or send me something through postal mail, you can find my info on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you listen via Apple Podcasts, that's iTunes, and you leave a review, I might read your comments here in the podcast. I got a review from Potatios in Australia, and she said, Like listening to a friend. Epic podcast. Great stories just long enough and gripping. Fantastic variety of horror topics, too. Whether you're into BEKs, ghosts and ghouls, zombies or psycho thrillers, there's something for everyone. Darren has a great voice, and it's like listening to a friend every episode. Thanks for making my drives to work a little brighter. That's from Potatios in Australia. The following stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Wendigo was posted at thescarechamber.com. The Brutality of Richard Speck was written by Catherine Phelan. It Was the Light That Woke Me was written by Weirdo family member Courtney Rondo and was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. The Ghost I Know was written by Sonia Robinson. Hunting the Octopus was posted at The Unredacted. And The Real Life Fugitive was written by Troy Taylor. Music in Weird Darkness comes from Midnight Syndicate, Shadows Symphony, and Audioblocks, and you can find links to all of them in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a registered trademark of Marlar House Productions. Copyright Marlar House Productions 2019. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Proverbs 14, verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. And a final thought from Buddha. When words are both true and kind, they can change our world. I'm your host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. As busy as I am with this podcast and doing voiceovers, I can't afford to be without energy and focus. Well, fortunately, I found the solution dawn to dusk. And not only does it give me that quick jolt of energy that I need as I get started in my workday, 
but it lasts a full 10 hours. Your high-calorie energy drink is not going to last 10 hours. It's totally safe, no calories to count, no salt to worry about, just the energy and focus you need to get the job done, day in, day out. If you find yourself struggling each morning as you start your day, or if you find yourself dragging in the late afternoon, Dawn to Dusk is your solution, and you can try it for yourself at the Sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. And you can save 10% off Dawn to Dusk and everything else on their website if you use the promo code WEIRD at checkout. That's WeirdDarkness.com. Click on the Sponsors page and use the promo code WEIRD to save 10%.